the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I have been very excited to bring you this episode. Today, we've got Ramit Sethi, and a lot of you know who he is. If you don't, well, it came to the right place. Today's episode is brought to you by Ministry Grid. You can get $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price by going to ministrygrid.com slash carry and by Generis. Schedule your free call with one of their generosity experts by going to generis.com slash carry. So Ramit Sethi is someone I ran into, well, started following probably close to a decade ago. I think I first heard him on the Tim Ferriss show, the Tim Ferriss podcast. I've taken a few of his courses. As you can tell, at times, I'm a big fan in this interview. And he is a financial expert, but also just brilliant at marketing. And so uh, we talk about how to stop fighting about money in your family, on your team, the power of invisible scripts, and counterintuitive marketing. I think he's one of the best marketers out there. I subscribe to his email list just to follow his writing. He is that good in my view. So, Ramit Sethi is a New York Times bestselling author and the CEO of I Will Teach You To Be Rich. He's been writing about money and psychology at I Will Teach You To Be Rich for nearly 20 years, and he now hosts a podcast which features real stories of real couples talking about their finances from behind closed doors. His stuff on marketing and invisible scripts, just really, really powerful. So thanks for tuning in today. If you love this episode, let us know. Uh, give us a shout out wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a rating and review. Let us know on the socials as well. I'm Carrie Newhoff over at uh, Instagram. Ramit, by the way, if you want to shout him out, is just Ramit, R-A-M-I-T. And today's episode is brought to you by Ministry Grid. Pastors and church leaders, as you get ready for the fall, you ever wish you could streamline and standardize your volunteer onboarding process and trainings? Well, if so, you should check out Ministry Grid. They have everything you need to streamline volunteer training in one single place. So they're the online tool that builds, customizes, and curates volunteer training. You can use their 700 plus training courses and upload your own videos and resources. They've seen churches add their own content to complement what they do. And you can do things like new membership classes, discipleship growth tracks, theological training, and other in-person classes. Turn them into digital courses using the Ministry Grid platform. My church connects Church uses Ministry Grid and have found it very beneficial. And the best news, as a listener of this podcast, you're getting $200 off the regular price. So for just $3.99 a year, you can get unlimited access for your church. Simply go to ministrygrid.com slash carry. That's where you're going to get the special offer. It's ministrygrid.com slash carry. And I sat down with Jim Shepard, the principal at Generis recently, and I asked him, how do you communicate biblical generosity to leaders. Like, what do you do about that? Here's his answer. You know, there's a lot of ways I could describe biblical generosity, Carrie, but I want to just zero in on one key element, and it's this. It's the idea of where the money comes from versus where the money goes to. In our churches, I would guess we spend over 90%, maybe even over 95% of, of our conversation about money is where it goes to. If you give to our campaign, if you give to our budget, if you give to this, to that. And if we look at the Bible, especially if we look at the model of Jesus and the model of Paul, when they talked about giving, they spent 95 to 98% talking about where it came from, and they hardly ever mentioned where it came to. 
I think if we can flip our script and talk more in a biblical manner about this, we'll make a lot more progress in that whole conversation area. We'll grow our people. And when we grow our people, everything we need gets funded as well. So understanding and regularly teaching biblical generosity is the foundation to developing a culture of generosity in your church. So if you want more from Jim Shepard, he's led the team at Generis for over 30 years and has a wealth of experience. He talks more about biblical generosity and the critical differences between giving from and giving to and what this means for developing your givers. So if you want to watch it, go to generis.com slash carry. And while you're there, schedule a free coaching call with one of their generosity experts. That's generis, G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com slash carry. And while you're there, schedule a free coaching call as well. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Ramit Sethi. Ramit, it's great to have you on my podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I've been following you for years and years. I, I think I probably first heard of you on the Tim Ferriss show. You and Tim have known each other a long, long time. I'm also an alumni of yours, a reader of your books, and I listen to your new podcast, all those things. But for leaders who may not be familiar with you, can you give us a little history of what you do and what it is that you do? Absolutely. So I help people with their money, careers, businesses, and psychology all under the umbrella of living a rich life. And if you think, for example, about money, when you think about hearing typical financial advice, it's almost always about no. No, you can't buy lattes. No, you can't go on vacation. No, no, no. And I just never wanted to live that kind of life. I wanted to live a life where I could choose where I wanted to live. I could go out with friends, take vacations, create experiences for me, and not feel guilty about it. And so I started off focusing on money. Uh, how do you earn more money? That's something that's often neglected. How do you manage it and invest it without getting taken in by scams? And how do you actually just make your money go where it needs to go? So I believe in automation. I spend less than one hour per month on my money. I believe you should as well. And I believe in understanding psychology. Money is not just about math. It's about understanding why we feel the way we do about money. And if you can control your money instead of letting it control you, then you can start to funnel it towards your rich life. Now, that's an interesting path because you're a Stanford grad, correct? And was it psychology and technology that you studied while you were there? That's right. I studied technology and psychology while I was at Stanford. And that was really revelatory for me because... While I was starting to understand human behavior, I was looking at the typical advice about money, and I just realized that most of the experts out there have no understanding of how people really behave. If they did, they would never start off by telling people all the things they couldn't do, because when you do that, you evoke something called reactance, and that is people saying, I don't want to listen to someone telling me what I can't do. Forget it. That's exactly what happens. They would not give people this huge stack of papers the first time they met them. I mean, for anyone listening, just imagine, what do you think happens in a financial advisor's office? Most of us can imagine. You walk in there, they start asking you all these weird questions. What are your financial goals? I don't know. I'm just here to see if I can retire one day. Uh, what do you think about your tax-advantaged accounts? I don't even know what tax-advantage means. And so a true understanding of psychology would flip that completely. When I speak to people, for example... The first question I ask them is, what is your rich life? And they will often tell me the same answer as everybody else. They'll go, well, I want to do what I want, when I want. 
I go, okay, that's pretty interesting. And what do you want? And then they just look at me and blink because they've never actually thought about it. What a tragedy. We go through our whole lives thinking about money, obsessing about money, in some cases chasing money, and we never actually thought about what we want to use it for. I consider that bizarre. What I love to hear is someone saying, you know what, Ramit, I just love the Lakers, and I want to go to five Lakers games every year, and I want to buy whatever I want to eat while I'm watching the game. I said, great. I would just as equally love if somebody says, I love handbags. I love them. They make me happy. I say, great. Thank you for telling me. Let's figure out how to make your money go where you need to go. And you could equally apply it to charity and many other things. How did money and business become your focus? Because I'm guessing the time you, by the time you left Stanford, a lot of your colleagues went on to work at companies like uh, Microsoft and Dropbox, Google, Apple, etc. It would have been, I think if I got my time right, it would be the early 2000s, mid-2000s? That's correct. Yeah, so why not the tech thing? I mean, you use a lot of technology in your online business, but <laughs> why not the you know just go into a career in tech? Well, it's funny you mention that because I actually did accept a job offer at Google and they said to me, oh, you should take some time. And I was like, oh, I will. I've been in school for five, many years. I'm going to take a break. And over that summer, I actually started my own tech company with uh, two other co-founders. And I went on, instead of going to Google, I decided to go and do it myself uh, with my co-founders. But I'll tell you why I did not stay in tech and why I do not consider our company a technology company. I think tech is great. When I looked at where I would be contributing my maximum value, I knew it was probably not being a product manager at some tech company. And I do know that a lot of my friends have worked at Google, Dropbox, et cetera. Some of them still work there. Great, that's great. But I think that it's um, when I thought about how to make the decision of where to work, I actually asked a lot of advisors and friends and mentors. And here's the advice they gave me. It was quite surprising. About half of them said, you should go to Google. If you have Stanford and Google on your resume, you'll have a killer resume. And the other half said, you should go do your own thing. Because if you ever want to go back to a big tech company, you always can. And I'll tell you, that first group who told me that I could have a really good resume, they actually really annoyed me. Because I said to myself, I... I have a Stanford undergraduate and graduate degree. I think my resume is pretty good. When do I get to stop chasing the resume? Or as many of us think about, when do I get to stop chasing what other people tell me should be part of my rich life? And that deeply affected me in the sense of, I want to craft my own rich life. Sure, I'm probably going to make a lot less money in the early days. I don't care. I'm not chasing money in my early 20s. I do want autonomy, I want responsibility, I want the challenge of doing something new. And this inspires me to talk to everybody about what their rich life is too. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've also got a podcast that in the last year you've just launched, and uh, I confess, it's a little bit addictive, Ramit. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Okay, you're welcome. It's uh, a little, I don't know, like um, uh, advice slash TV show slash 
like, I wonder what's going to happen next. So talk to me about the format because it's really fascinating. And what are you learning about couples and money? Okay. Thank you for the way you set that up because that's actually my dream introduction to this podcast. Really? Seriously? Yes. I want it. I want this podcast to be voyeuristic. I want it to be real stories from real couples from behind closed doors. That's what it is. Okay. When my wife and I were engaged, we started talking about money. Honestly, we shouldn't have waited that long. I violated my own rules. Okay. So I'll admit it. And we started talking about money and we decided that we were going to do a prenup. And the prenup process was something that I wanted advice on. I wanted to know how to talk about it. So I started Googling around how to talk about a prenup. And the advice is awful. It's all these broke people on Reddit who, number one, they tell you like, oh, prenups, don't do it. It's a waste of time. It can easily be broken. Or it's people who write these blog posts and they say, just have the conversation. I was like, what conversation? Like, literally, what am I supposed to say here? So uh, when as we went through our process, it became challenging for us. And eventually my wife said, we need to go see somebody because this is not working the way we're talking about money. And so we went to see a therapist and the therapist was immensely helpful. And I share this because I want to demystify getting help, whether it's therapy, whether it's listening to a podcast like this, there's so many options out there. And so, you know, we ended up, of course, getting married and we went through that process and we learned a lot about each other and about money in our conversations. And so for this podcast, what I wanted to do was to show people the kind of conversations that other couples are having, because it's lonely talking about money with your partner. It's lonely fighting about, did, did, did my partner spend too much at Target? Can we afford this house? I want to go here for vacation. You don't want to go. And I find that blog posts don't do it. I need to hear other couples. So because of our business and our reach, we can actually bring real couples onto the podcast. They share real numbers. You're going to hear for the first time how much people make, how much they spend. And then I just give it to them straight. I listen to them. I ask them questions. We end up often talking about their childhood. Why do they feel scared about money? But you will hear conversations from behind closed doors about money that you've never heard before. Yeah. And you know what really interests me? And that's your background in psychology. You say, I'm not a financial planner. I'm not a psychologist, which I get. But some of the plot lines, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, um, seem to suggest you're both. So I was listening the other day to the couple who had the episode with the couple who has a net worth of 5.7 million and were hoarders because... I think that was the woman's case. She was completely petrified about not having enough. Like, I think it was something like they spent $200 to repair their car and were worried about doing more than that. And uh, they have a room full of diapers and they got all kinds of free clothing because they really had the scarcity mentality. And then there was another guy on your podcast who couldn't stop spending and he had a credit card debt and he was in Central America or South America or something. Um, and you know, you were coaching him. So first of all, you're very patient. I don't know how you got that patient because it's very easy to give advice. And secondly, these issues almost always go back to childhood, don't they? Yeah. We carry around the messages that we learn from childhood, even 40 years later. And many of us find this deeply uncomfortable to acknowledge because you and I and everyone listening likes to believe that we are rational automatons in control of our behavior. 
And it's quite troubling to realize that you might actually feel the way you do about money because of something you overheard your mom say at the dinner table when you were six years old. Let me give a few examples that might stand out to listeners. Think back to what you remember about your family's discussions about money. Did any of these phrases come up? Phrases like, we don't talk about money in this household. We can't afford it. What do you think? Money grows on trees? Those are just three invisible scripts, and there are many more we explore in the podcast. Uh, There's also cultural ones. For example, I had a Pakistani couple where the husband was expected to routinely send money back to his family. We're talking about thousands of dollars whenever his family called. Now, you can't really internalize or understand that unless you are from a culture like that. But for the people who have been experienced in that culture, they go, oh my God, finally somebody is talking about something that I've been thinking about my whole life. So we have gender, we have culture, we have income, we have somebody who has 10 plus million dollars and he won't, uh, he's berating his wife because the mattress that she found for their children is too expensive. Now, listen, it's easy for us to sit here and go, stop being cheap. And maybe he should. But it's really fascinating to start to unpeel the layers of who he is and why he feels that way. Yeah, because I was thinking of that couple too. They had a net worth of $5 million and she was afraid to spend $207 a night on a hotel room in downtown New York City. I love that couple. Yeah, so help people understand that like not having money is a problem, but somebody told me years ago, having money is a problem as well. It introduces all sorts of challenges that way. And I think regardless of people's financial position, what would cause someone, <laughs> I'm just curious, who had a net worth that most people could only dream of, um, you know, 5 million or more, what is that? The top 1% or so? Yeah, more than 1%, yeah. So you're in the top one percentage and you won't spend 300 a night on a hotel in Manhattan and you end up staying at some sub-rate neighborhood, sub-rate hotel because you can't spend the money. What would cause someone to do that? Was that an invisible script thing? Yes, there are a variety of things that would cause that. Let's start off with the fact that most of us experience everyone around us telling us to save, save, save. Everybody teaches you how to save money but nobody actually teaches you how to spend it. And I know that because when I talk to couples or individuals and I ask them, what's your rich life? They go, I don't know what I want, when I want. I go, okay, what? And then they have no clue. And they literally will tell me stuff like, coffee, I like coffee. And I go, listen, I like coffee too, but that's boring. Okay, fine, get an extra cup of coffee, get a cool uh, single origin brew. That's 10 bucks. You have $2 million in the bank. You have to dream bigger than that. And it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they are stupid. It's that they've spent their whole life on chapter one of their finances, which is saving. And they've done very well. But nobody ever told them, you won the game. It's time to turn the page and move to chapter two, where you have to be just as disciplined about how to spend your money as you were about how to save it. And, And I'll tell you, you know, it's, to me, it's quite a tragedy to live a smaller life than you have to. And let me, let me just spend a second on this because I don't want anybody to think that when I talk about the rich life, it's only about splurging on luxuries and uh, you know doing all these fancy things. I love that stuff. 
And if that's of interest to you, I would totally encourage you to do it. But I also think that a rich life is intentional. It's about generosity. It's about charity. It's about experience and family. So for example, this very couple who had $5.7 million and she would not stay at a Manhattan hotel that cost $297 a night, which is a, quite a reasonable rate in that part of town. Sure is. Here's how I reached her. I couldn't reach her by telling her, look at the compound interest, it's doubling every seven years. She doesn't care about that. I said, who works at that hotel that you decided not to be a part of? There are porters, there are doormen, there are housekeeping. You, as someone who's fortunate enough to have amassed a large amount of money, could share that with all of those people by staying there and by tipping generously. Another example, she was waiting in line for the free tickets in Times Square. You know, tourists go there, you know, they save up all their money and they wait in line. And I, and I knew exactly what to do. I'm Indian, so I've, I know what Indian mom guilt is like. I employed it like a weapon. And, and I just, I was like, this is my chance. I said, listen, so you're, here you are, a multimillionaire standing in line, and you get to the front of the line, you get that last Lion King ticket. And that poor family behind you who came from some little no-name town, and they were hoping to take their children to see Lion King, but they can't afford the full ticket. Now they can't see it because you, a multimillionaire, took the last ticket. How do you feel? And she was like, oh my God. And I was like, gotcha. You see, this is psychology at its best. Yes, you can have a little fun with it, but deep down, this is deeply serious. It's making her realize she can afford it. And in fact, she has an obligation to spend her money in a way that helps other people who cannot afford the same things she can. I love those stories, you know, and it's funny. I remember that moment of the podcast. I was on my bike. I know exactly where I was. Sometimes that happens with me with podcasts. If I get a particular insight, it's like, oh yeah, I was standing right over there, riding right over there when I heard it. But, you know, I can see it. I know people who have money, who wouldn't want to spend 500 bucks to go to the show. They stand in line. But when you said, yeah, because that one person behind you didn't get the ticket, who didn't have the money for the full price, like that was so good. So what, what would you say? Because we have many leaders who obviously have this, but we also have leaders who don't have that level of money, probably far more that don't, obviously. So when you talk to someone who's like, Ramit, I got $50,000 in credit card debt. I got a mortgage. I've got a, bought a house at the peak of the market. I'm a little bit underwater. Where do you start with a couple that would be in a more normal position financially? Yeah. Absolutely. M most people are not multimillionaires, uh, you know, flying around and, and things like that. So I make, make it a point to explore all ranges. And just so all the listeners know, um, you know, I spoke to a couple on the podcast who has $828,000 of debt and all different levels. So, and there's a resolution for them on the podcast. That debt affected them so much that they were questioning having more children. They were questioning where they're going to live. It really affects every part of your life. So with a couple who has credit card debt or feels that they are way behind, the first question I would just ask them is, tell me about a time where you were not on the same financial page. I want to hear a specific situation and I want to hear both perspectives because that tells me 80% of what I need to know the words will come out. Words like, she always says this, or he can never let that go. Okay, I'm filing that away. Of course, I want to know about 
um, what do they want to feel like? What would an ideal situation be like? As you can see, I'm taking this very slowly, very methodical. For everybody listening, think about something that you had to take a lot of time to get good at. It could be riding a bike. It could be making the perfect cup of coffee, whatever. You don't just rush from A to Z. You take time, and that's exactly what we do with the I Will Teach process. I want to know what their rich life is. I want to ask how they grew up with money. And finally, I want to get to the numbers. I want to ask them about their income. This is where it gets crunchy and tactical. Most people do not know how much they owe. 90% of people in debt do not know how much they owe. 95% of people do not know what their debt payoff date is. So for example, if you have $25,000 of credit card debt, that just feels overwhelming. But that's just a number. And my dream for these couples is to take it from the clouds to the street. I want them to know that you will pay this debt off in January of 2036 if you change nothing. But if you make three changes, you can pay it off six years early. And their eyes get wide because they actually realize they can have an effect on this debt. But we can't jump to the numbers until we start with who they are, why they think about money, and where they want to go. So then what do you do? Because I can't think of a single couple. I know in our marriage, I've been married for three decades and money is a challenge. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And you know what? Like today we're in good shape financially. We're on the same page, but probably around the 20 year mark in our marriage, we were having a really hard time getting on the same page financially. I couldn't understand my wife. My wife couldn't understand me. I didn't understand her position. And we didn't have like an extreme story with ridiculous debt or ridiculous priorities, but it was just a normal couple trying to pay for their kids through college, et cetera. But finally, we figured it out. And I think what I found is that my wife, Tony, has a need for security and I have a need not to feel tied down, which is one of the reasons I don't like budgeting. It's like, you can't tell me what to do, right? And so we found a way to make it work. It's worked incredibly well. And a lot of resources have helped with that. So here's my question. What do you do if you find a couple, and I don't think I've heard a single episode of your podcast where, where you know a couple was on the same page. What do you do when you find a couple who isn't on the same page? <laughs> well, if they're on the same page, that what, what kind of story am I going to talk to them about? Oh yeah, we we make four hundred grand and life is great. So anyway, uh, what should we do with our extra money? Every it's kind of boring. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, because I think there's a lot of people sitting there right now yeah. who are like, we're not on the same page. So what would you say? Like, where do you start? How do you find that middle ground? The first place I start is to help them create a rich life vision together. So I'll literally ask them, what is your rich life? And here's a great little crunchy exercise you can do together. So you can, you do the bucket list exercise. I'll ask them, I'd like both of you to write down your list in the next 10 years, what's on your bucket list? And the way I want you to think about this is if 10 years from now, if we look back on our time, and we do these things, we would have had an amazing decade. Some of them can be just for you. Some of them can be for the two of you together or involving your whole family. Write them down. So they take five minutes. They write down five to seven items. And then I say, okay, tell each other one by one. And this is where I get to gently coach them on some ways of talking about it. This is quite new for people because if you're fighting about money, you're usually fighting about, you spent too much on asparagus. We're not gonna have enough. And now I'm allowing them the room to dream. So they go, I'd like to learn Spanish. 
well, I'd like to go to Portugal. And when they say those things, I ask the other partner to get curious. Oh my gosh, Portugal, that sounds amazing. Where would you want to stay? What kind of food do you think that we should eat together? And it's just this curiosity that totally changes the dynamic. What I do from there is it's not enough to dream. This is not just a woo-woo, you know, let's all sing Kumbaya together. This is real planning. So I say, okay, pick one, pick a big one. For my wife and I, we picked a 10-year wedding anniversary that we want to have abroad. We like to celebrate. And so it's a big thing. We said, okay, let's write down how much we think it's going to cost. Both of us wrote down a number. We just guessed, estimated. My number was way bigger than hers. I said, you know what? If we've got two numbers, let's go with the bigger one because we're dreaming big. So we picked the bigger one and then we put it into our financial system. We automated it. So this is where every single month we are putting money towards that big goal. And so every month we do what's called a rich life review. And it's like a video game. We know that our money is being saved towards this core part of our rich life. Do you want to talk about some of your rules, your money rules, and how it's different for you? I think that's one of the reasons I keep coming back to what you do, Ramit. I find it fascinating. Like, what are a couple of your personal money rules? For example, you know, stop focusing on $3 decisions and start thinking about $30,000 decisions or whatever. Thank you. Thank you. I do tell people, stop focusing on $3 questions. Start asking $30,000 questions. $3 questions would be things like, you know, did you buy the extra large Coke when we were eating out? Or um, I don't know, should we buy this coffee or this appetizer? Honestly, stop it. That doesn't change your financial situation at all. There are things that are way bigger, like am I automatically investing my money? Do I have my asset allocation set up correctly? Have I negotiated my salary or am I being paid what I'm worth? Have I uh, considered a side job? These are big questions, and if you get those five to 10 big wins right in life, the rest of them are irrelevant. I'll give you a few of my money rules. Um, so I, here's, a, here's a little exercise that I encourage everybody to do. Uh, I like everybody to create their own 10 money rules. By the way, do you have your money rules? You know, I think I have them in my head, but my wife and I haven't really gone through the exercise. Okay, so okay. one of these days, I'm going to do it. Well, this will be a fun exercise. Yeah, so generally, one money rule for me, and tell me if I'm on the right track here, it would be generally I fly business class when I'm speaking, even on short flights. And the reason is we have the margin to do so. I'm also six foot two. I do not fit well into normal seats. It's So for me, it's a pretty plain and simple thing. <laughs> and I have flown overseas. I've arrived exhausted when I haven't flown business. I speak all over the world and I've done trips to Australia, Europe. And, you know, you show up, you're exhausted. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just not ready to, to serve people well. So sometimes I have to pay for it out of my own pocket. And if so, I'll do it. And so, uh, you know, fly business if you can. Okay. So this is a great example of a money rule. At any given day, at any given month, you're going to face thousands of financial decisions, right? Should we take the business class flight? Should we take the red eye? Should we eat at this restaurant or that? Should we stay an extra day with our family on vacation? And it can become very overwhelming. It's actually very hard to make these kinds of decisions. So I like to have... 10 or so money rules that simplify life for me. Now, I'll give you a few examples of my money rules, and I would encourage everyone to create their money rules. Okay, remember, these are my money rules, not yours. These fit me like a glove. So one of them is always have one year of emergency fund cash. Okay, that's just, I'm conservative. 
I want to have that, fine. No big deal on that. Here's another one. Uh, save 10%, invest 20% of gross annual income. Again, I'm conservative. That's sort of a boring financial rule. Let's get to the more fun ones, okay? How about this? Uh, never question spending on books, appetizers, health, or donating to a friend's charity fundraiser. I chose that because I feel incredibly free when I can buy a book. And I believe anyone, if you see a book that looks interesting, just buy it. That's my book buying rule. I also believe if a friend is raising money for their charity fundraiser, I'm going to donate the, as much as I possibly can, more than they ask for. Because I know I've raised charity events with my wife, and it was very meaningful to me when my friends stepped up. Uh, now I have some other ones, like uh, business class on flights over four hours, just like you. When I was younger, I would never understand why people would fly business class. What a waste. We're all getting to the same place. Da, da, da. Now I understand it. I wish I had been more curious back then. And uh, I'll give you two more. One is prioritize time outside the spreadsheet. I talk about money for a living. But ultimately, my rich life is not sitting in front of Excel. It's being outside. It's talking to you. It's being with my family. So spend time outside the spreadsheet. And finally, number 10, marry the right person. A rich life is not just about dollars and cents. In fact, if anything, that's a small but important part of a rich life. It's about the people you surround yourself with, the intention you set. And I think who you marry or partner with is the most important financial decision that any of us ever make. So it's worth spending time on that. Great. Like, tell me about the appetizers thing. I think there's a story <laughs> underneath that. There's a story because otherwise, why would... Of all these rules with business class and marrying, why does appetizers show up on my money rules? Thank you for asking. Okay, so when I was a kid, uh, my parents, Indian immigrants, uh, my dad worked, my mom was home with us, the kids, and we didn't have a lot of money. We, we were middle class, but we were very frugal. And when we would eat out, it was about once every six weeks or so, we would eat at a pizza place. We would always use a coupon and when we were little, we would, you know, kind of strategize how many quarters can we ask dad to give us, you know, so we can play on the, don't ask for more than two, that's too much. So we never ordered appetizers, never. It was unheard of in our family. And I remember in my early 20s, my rich life was to be able to order appetizers. That's it. Now, what is that? $10, sometimes $15. But to me, it was so meaningful because I couldn't do it as a child, and now I can. And in fact, now whenever I eat out with my coworkers, I always tell them, okay, here's my rule when we eat out. If you see anything that looks good on the menu, you have to order it. Don't think twice. And of course, I'm covering the bill. And that is that feels so good to me. So that is so meaningful to me that it actually made its way onto my money rules list. And the, and the example there is that I want your money rules to fit you like a glove. If I read your money rules, I should know it is undeniably you. So when you create your money rules, it's not just about limiting yourself and saying no buying brand name products. It's actually about empowering yourself to spend extravagantly on the things you love. Another money rule for us for me, and I want to be careful with what I say here, but Christians have and other religions too, uh, they have this thing called tithing. And that's been really important to my wife and I. That was probably my first money rule back when, when we first got married. You know, it's easy to tithe when you have no money because you give 10 cents on a dollar. So, you know, like that's easy. 
But now here we are at the point where we go beyond tithing and we want tithing, like our giving, to be the single biggest line item of our annual budget every year. Wow. That's the rule. And then we can play around with that a little bit. Maybe we go uh, a little bit more if it was a tighter year or if it's a really good year, we can go beyond what we dreamed. But we just want it to be the biggest line item in our budget, bigger than our housing, bigger than what we drive, bigger than our vacations. And my wife and I are having a lot of fun doing that. I love that. That's actually the first time I've ever heard that level of specificity around giving. But I love what you said at the end. We're having fun doing that. Isn't this, all of this should be fun, all of it. Even if you're talking about a mortgage payment or rent, even if you're talking about something that doesn't, like credit card debt, there is an element of fun you can find in it because these are all steps towards your rich life. Yeah, it might suck to have to pay 16% interest, but we're doing that so that we can be debt-free and live our rich life along the way and afterwards. And I just, I love your idea of generosity being your number one line item. Well, you know, what I like about that system too of money rules is it kind of validates what a person wants. So we had sought financial advice all through our 20s and 30s when money was way tighter, when the kids were young. And, you know, I was working in a church for almost no money. My wife was working part-time. And what we kept hearing from advisors is small things, like the $3 decisions. And then they all said, you're giving too much money away. And I'd say like, well, it's a faith thing. And then one day we sat down with this new financial planner and, you know, I told him, hey, we want to make this the biggest line item in our budget. And he just said, okay, you want to make that the biggest line item in your budget? Great. What else do you want? And I'm like, okay, where's the pushback? There was no pushback. And then I told him what else we wanted to do. And he's like, no, we're just going to make that all happen. And then he asked my wife, what do you want? And she says, well, I want to know that we have enough that when we stop working, we don't have to keep you know, working when we hit a certain age. And he goes, great, here's a number you need to save every year. Now, what else do you want? And we said, well, we like to get a vacation in every year or two, uh, you know, great, what else do you want? And it was like, wow, we're really going to make this work? So he just reversed engineered everything. And you have a very similar approach. Like if you want to take a vacation and you're saving, what is it like 10% for saving, 20% for investing? And what you do with the rest is okay. That's what I think is so revolutionary about the approach that you take. I love hearing that the planner you spoke to encouraged you to do that. That's very, very sophisticated to be able to do that because most of us, if we walk into talk to somebody about money or even listen to a podcast. Deep down psychologically, we're already rigid and we're ready to hear what we can't do. And that is a terrible way to embark on a new journey. So if you have somebody highly skilled who comes and says, okay, we could do that. What else? After two or three of those, you'll see people visibly breathe and then they'll actually start to realize, oh my God, we spent our whole lives telling ourselves we can't do this, but this person just said, yeah, we could do that. What else? And we don't even know what we want to do. And that is a beautiful conversation right there. You get to dream together. 
It was great. And, you know, for a while, we were trying to put two sons through university, debt-free for us and debt-free for them. And it's like, all right, we're going to pull things in a little bit tighter this year, uh, or for a few years, actually. And he showed us how to do that. And it just worked out so wonderfully well. Anything else on the podcast or in real life when you're coaching couples on their finances that you think would be of interest to leaders? Uh, Well, I think when it comes to um, couples, there's a couple things that actually surprise me about what couples are willing to put up with. So when I speak to them, uh, a lot of them have never had a serious conversation about money. And by the way, it's not, people say have the conversation about money. Let's reframe that. You're not going to have one conversation about money. You're going to have thousands, just like you're not going to have one conversation about children. You're going to have thousands. That's how it goes. It's normal. So just accept it. That's number one is most people they are totally reactive with money. In fact, I asked a couple recently on the podcast, when was the last time you talked about money when it wasn't a fight? And they just looked at each other and they just said, never. Like as if I'm crazy to ask that question. And I said, okay, do you know, do you believe that it's possible to talk about money without fighting? And they look completely bewildered because to them, their invisible script, which they had absorbed from their parents was, we only talk about money when we're fighting. They're like, why else would you talk about money? That's weird. And I said, "Uh, you know what I think is weird? It's going 45 years for the rest of your life fighting about money. Why don't we fix this? So, you know, I do something called a rich life review. Once a month, you sit down with your partner or with yourself and you have a rich life review. And you start, I'm very prescriptive about the structure of these at first, because if I'm not, people will go right back to the way they used to do it. And they'll start critiquing how much you spent on Skittles. I'm like, stop it. This is a waste of my time and yours. So they start off by complimenting their partner about one thing. You got to start with positivity. Money is so mired in negativity. It'd be something like this. Uh, babe, I, I just want to tell you, I really admire the way that you always find the best flight deals. You're so great at finding these deals. I don't know how you do it, but you always find great ones for both of us. So thank you. Wow. Then the other person does the same. And then I give them a structure of what to talk about next. What do you think we should change about our money? What should we do more of? That would be something you and your wife probably talked about. We should donate more. What do you think we should change? Who do we admire about money? And then finally you get into the numbers and you tie it all up by realizing you don't have to solve everything in one conversation. That's actually incredibly freeing. Uh, and, And if you can start that way and do it once a month, you are ahead of 95% of other couples. I don't know that you have thought about this quite in this frame. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book, Getting to Yes. It's the Harvard Negotiation Projects study that came out back when I was in law school. And it's still one of the best-selling books on negotiation today. And in one part of the negotiation project was the difference between positions and interest. Positions being, hey, we're not buying a new car. Interest being, but we need reliable transportation. Another example would be like, okay, we're buying a new or a used car, right? That's an interest. We need a car. Position is new or used. So, um, and maybe at the base of it, you know, the interest is reliable transportation. You see that? I see you do that almost naturally with couples, helping them move past the spender, saver, fearful, aggressive positions that they might hold. Can you talk a little bit about the approach you use as a negotiation tool? Yeah. 
Well, thank you for recognizing that. A lot of my work is deeply influenced by the great negotiators and mediators who came before me. I don't teach people the technical process because they really don't care about that. Not, not on this podcast. Uh, it's the rare person like you who, who deeply studies the technical underpinnings. And we should talk about that offline. Uh, so what I find with couples is a lot of them will create an identity or a story for themselves. And if I come in and tell them they're wrong, that's a terrible way to approach it. What I want to do is gently question or gently interrogate that story and let them come to the conclusion that maybe I've just been telling myself a story. I'll give you an example. When I was in my uh, when I was in college, I was pretty skinny, and I would joke about myself. I'm just a skinny Indian guy. Let me say that again so that you can hear the exact language I use. I'm just a skinny Indian guy. Ha ha ha. It's kind of funny. It got the sort of PG-rated laughs, but it's actually not that funny. And I wish I hadn't said that about myself because it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that I couldn't become more fit. I couldn't put on muscle. That's not true. I just didn't know how to do it. You know, my parents weren't teaching me how to deadlift when I was 15. They were showing me how to crush spelling bees. Okay. And thank you, mom and dad. I'm glad I did that. So instead I had to learn on my own. But changing the identity was the hardest part. So if we have a couple where one person says, well, he's just an overspender. He just spends on what he's impulsive. I go, okay, maybe that's true. Are you impulsive, John? John will say, yeah, I am, but I don't know. I'm trying to get better. I say, okay, what else? What, what are the other stories you tell about yourself? I'm a good father. Uh, I'm really good at cars. You know, I love my parents and I love my family. Okay, great. If you could rewrite your story with money, what would it be? And I gently take them through a process. But what I want to do is simply open the door to them realizing that the things they've been telling themselves are just a story. I was not just a skinny Indian guy. I simply did not know that I could change. I'd never seen somebody who looked like me who was, for example, a bodybuilder. But the same with the couples I speak, and same with listeners right now. You may feel I'm not good at math. Fair enough. But what if you could be, what if you could feel confident about your money? Well, people are very open to that. And I tell them gently, the way you feel confident is to become more competent. And that's what I can help you do. This almost goes back to the invisible script thing, because when I heard you pose that question, I found all kinds of invisible scripts. I'll give you a current example. About a month ago, I signed up for this like fitness program. Not cheap, hired a trainer, it's all digitized, etc. I was doing workout number 11 and week three of the diet. And I found myself thinking yesterday afternoon, I'm the guy that programs like this don't work for. And then I was like, whoa, where did, like, where did that come from? So talk a little bit more about how invisible, like invisible scripts and how they impact leadership, finances, you know, your personal psychology and how to spot them and perhaps some examples of invisible scripts. Invisible scripts are beliefs we hold that are so deeply embedded that we don't even realize that they are beliefs. I'll give you a few examples. Um, you have to buy a house. That's the American dream. That's one of the most pervasive invisible scripts on earth. And I could talk about why that's not true, but that's one of them. Uh, I need to go to college, okay? Or even more education is a better thing. 
Now, you can see some of these invisible scripts can be quite positive. I actually happen to believe that, in general, more education is good. Uh, there are invisible scripts like um, uh, you, you, you should always hold your family close. You know, blood is thicker than water type of thing. That's an invisible script as well. It's a belief we have. What I want to do with people is help them recognize these scripts that are held so closely they don't even realize their beliefs because we take them as axiomatic. We just believe they are true, but maybe they're not. Maybe the American dream isn't actually to buy a suburban house with 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. Maybe that's actually a created dream. Maybe our rich life is to travel six months a year. Or maybe our rich life is to donate and make that the biggest line item on our expenses, as you and your wife do commendably. What I want people to do is to start to ask themselves, where did I get that belief from? And so I have a series of exercises. Uh, I think we offer, I think we're setting up iwt.com slash carry for your listeners. We have an automate your uh, finances thing. And in that little mini program, you start to go through a series of exercises on what are my invisible suits? What do I believe about money? And what do the people I admire believe about money? So take a, a lot of times I ask people, who do you admire about money? And sometimes they're just stumped. Stumped. It can be a tough question. It's a tough one. So I'll, I'll cue them a little bit. i say, do you have a couple that you go to dinner with that you admire? No, I don't know. Do you have a friend? No, I don't know. I say, okay, if you can't think of somebody in your life, let's go fictional. Think of somebody in TV or the movies. I really don't care how theatrical or ridiculous it is. I just want you to put yourself in the mindset of someone who's good with money. So who knows what they say? They might say, well, no one has said Richie Rich. That would be a weird choice, but it could be Richie Rich. Hell, it could be James Bond. I don't really care. The, the point is I want to get them out of their own invisible scripts and into somebody else's uh, and the way they think about money. So if they pick, I don't know, James Bond, I would say, what does James Bond, what does James think about money? And they would say, uh, James is willing to spend on nice suits and nice drinks because he knows it's an important part of his job. I say, okay, great. Now, what if you took that invisible script and you applied it to your life? And they're always stumped, but I help them. I say, uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind of bread do you have in your fridge right now? And they're like, I have the cheapest one from the grocery store. It's the ultimate, I get the clearance one, two days old. I say, okay, is, is that what James Bond would do? Oh no, James gets the freshest multigrain bread of all. Okay, so how much would it cost you to get bread like James Bond? It would cost me $2.50 more per week. Do you think that's worth it? And suddenly they start to rethink the way these deep grooves have been created around their invisible scripts. That's how I do it. That's really smart because when you're thinking, if you pick someone else that you really admire, well, that, prob that person is probably investing their money, right? That person might not be flying business right now because they've got debt or this person would be because they've saved well. So it's so funny. I talked to one friend who's a business writer and she had a very difficult childhood, very impoverished childhood, but she led a very successful business, which they ultimately sold. But she told me once that in the midst of their rise up financially, they had a, a level of income neither of them could, could personally believe. But she was still taking ketchup and salt and pepper shakers from restaurants and airplanes. She was taking them home just in case she needs them. 
So, you know, she rolls up to a million dollar home with these salt and pepper packages and ketchup packages. Like, would someone, and then the question is, would someone at your level of income do that? Probably not. No, I, I find it such a tragedy, but, but I deeply understand it. And I'm very compassionate towards it. Uh, and, and by the way, I still do stuff like that in my own life. Yeah, you have said you're ridiculously cheap on some things, like you cut you cut costs, right? Yeah, well, okay, and and I, so here the phrase that I use is: I want you to spend extravagantly on the things you love, but cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. But some, t- I'll even admit that uh, you know there are certain things that I should just get a new one. But I'll give you a couple of examples. So the things that I love and that I spend a lot of money on, I love traveling. My wife and I prioritize traveling. We travel for many weeks every single year and we set aside as a line item. I'm a hotel guy, so I'm always tracking our favorite hotels and, you know, et cetera. And we'll often bring our friends and family with us on these trips. So that is really important to us. If you saw what we spend as a percentage of income, it's a significant percentage. It's important to us. On the other hand, I don't really care about cars at this point in my life. I hardly drive. I have a very old car. It's a great car. I'm Indian, so you know it's a Honda Accord. The only other choice would have been a Toyota Camry. I got this Honda Accord. It's great. The thing runs. Fine. I don't need a new one. Um, You know, it's funny. The other day, I go to hotels. I love hotels, but I won't get anything out of the minibar. Not because I can't afford it. It's just like, that almost seems off limits. Like, that's crazy. Because again, when we were kids. Now, could I afford it? Yes. Do I... Should I? I guess if I want to sit and have a drink alone in my hotel room, I guess. But it's just, it's not that important to me. But also, it's a bit ridiculous. I know if someone was like, Ramit, come on, man. I'd be like, you're right. So we all have these blind spots, all of us, myself included. It's okay to have them. The last thing I want to do is make people feel bad about money. But I do want to let people know you can have a sense of humor about this stuff. Okay, listen, lady, you probably shouldn't be taking salt and pepper packets out. You're a multimillionaire. Come on, let's let's get real. I'll buy you the biggest Morton salt you ever saw. How about that? You know, we could have some fun with it. But deep down, I don't want millionaires to be hoarding salt and pepper. There's a problem there. So you have a different take on real estate too, which I think is fascinating. And I've shared it with some people because I think it's a really interesting approach. But I think you can make a plausible argument that we'd be further ahead financially if people had rented for the last 30 years because uh, there's always something going wrong with the house, right? I talked to a guy yesterday doing an interview and he's like, I'm not in my normal studio because we just, you know, we're doing the basement. We discovered how bad the termites are in the basement. And I'm like, yeah, nobody ever talks about that side of ownership. It's just $300,000 in equity or $700,000 in equity. And that's the only part they tell you about. That's right. So what's your take on real estate? I think that uh, real estate, particularly in America, it has um, has become contorted and almost perverted into purely wealth building when really it's about providing shelter. So I'll give you a few phrases that everyone will recognize. You're just throwing money away on rent. Okay. And it's funny. They don't, I say, okay, that's interesting. When you go out to a restaurant and you have a nice meal, are you throwing money away? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm paying for a great meal and someone to do the dishes. Okay. So when I'm paying rent, I'm just paying for a roof over my head and someone to come fix the bathroom if something goes wrong. Oh, no, no, no. That's different. You're throwing money away in rent. You're not building equity. I go, what the? All right. So that's, that's number one. 
here's the here's the basic argument. My basic argument is quite simple. If you plan to buy, I want you to run the numbers. That's the simple argument. Let me explain why. Because in many cities, specifically high cost of living cities, it is dramatically cheaper to rent than to buy. Now, already 50% of the people right now are starting to scream as they're listening to me saying, this guy's crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I ran the numbers. That's all I ask of you. I lived in cities such as San Francisco, LA, and New York. In each of those cities, it was far cheaper to rent. I made a much better financial decision renting than buying. And I especially love this example because I could buy right now. I could buy, but I choose to rent. Let me explain why. When I lived in New York, there was an apartment very close to me, same exact intersection. And if I had bought it instead of renting, I would have paid over two times the price to own. Why? Because there are these things called phantom costs, taxes, um, uh, insurance, interest on your mortgage, um, all of these things that are not factored in uh, when you are renting. Now, a lot of people will say, well, the renter pays that. The landlord just passes those costs along. Wrong. The landlord charges what the market will bear. Sometimes they make a profit. Sometimes they don't. And a lot of the time, they don't even know if they're making a profit. You have to remember, most people are not that savvy with money. So I want you to rent. No, sorry. I said that wrong. I don't want you to rent. I want you to run the numbers. And depending on what you decide is part of your rich life, then you can decide whether to buy or rent. Some people rent because they want to move more frequently. Some people buy because they love redecorating. That's up to you. But at least I want you to factor in the numbers in this biggest decision of your life. Any other contrarian financial advice you want to offer leaders? Well, I don't think it's contrarian. I just think it's right. <laughs> the contrarian doesn't think they're contrarian. They just say, just listen to this. This is the right way to do it. All right, I'll tell you a few things that I believe that are backed up with data, by the way. Stop focusing on $3 questions. Lattes are not causing your financial problems. Um, uh, let's see. The most, the simplest investment that you could possibly make would be a target date fund. It's simple. It's one fund. And you should not be sitting around picking stocks. You're not good at picking stocks. I'm sorry if that's insulting. Can you explain the target date fund? Uh, yes, target date funds. Okay, so let me zoom out. People go, okay, what am I supposed to invest in? It sounds really complicated. I don't wanna have to sit and look at stocks all day. You shouldn't. You don't have to do that. And in fact, even the highly paid people on Wall Street who do that fail to beat the market 80% of the time. Now, you can actually match the market and pay essentially nothing in fees. Let me explain. The simplest investment is something called a target date fund. And this is the way it works. It's one fund. You go online, for example, to a place like Vanguard, Fidelity, or Schwab. They all offer these funds. And you tell them your age, and they will suggest a fund. Uh, this is the way it works. You know, if I'm planning to retire in 2065, it will give me a 2065 fund. That's what it'll be called. And all that means is it's more aggressive as you're younger. And as you get older, it becomes more conservative. This is called your asset allocation. This turns out to be more important than any individual investment you make. And I would argue that this is more important than almost any other financial decision you make. Think about it. People are sitting over here for the next 40 years of their life. They're agonizing over the price of cheesecake, and they've never even heard the phrase asset allocation. 
This is a huge mistake. You're focusing on all the wrong things. You could buy all the cheesecake and pastries you want if you get your asset allocation right. So focus on the things that matter. Ignore the stuff that doesn't. Go get the cheesecake. The final thing I'll say is, I talk to so many people who are worried about money. Worry, guilt, anxiety, these are the primary feelings around money. And yet when I ask them, when was the last time you read a single book on personal finance? They go, oh, no, no, I'm not a money guy. I'm not a money person. I go, what is happening right now? What planet are we on? If you want to become confident with your money, start by being competent. Pick up my book, pick up any book on money, join my newsletter. This is the kind of stuff that you should take control of. If you pay someone else to do it, a lot of people go, oh, I'll pay 1% to a financial advisor. By the end of your life, you'll pay close to 30% of your returns out in fees. That's a staggering number. The math is quite counterintuitive, but it's all covered in my book and on my newsletter. The book, by the way, leaders, is I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. That's also the name of your podcast too. That's right, that's right. I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And the website is iwt.com slash carry. Yep, iwt.com slash carry. We have a little uh, automate your money, a free little mini course that we put together. It kind of walks your listeners through how to set all this stuff up in a lightweight, rapid way. And then you can start having some more fun with your money. That's a huge gift for me. Man, thank you so much. Okay, lightning round. Can we do a few fun little questions? Sure. Anything else you can offer on money? Anything on the podcast on money? Or do you want to talk about ways to save money or anything like that that would be quicker? And then we can do a lightning round on a few other things. The, I mean, the other things that I talk about that are kind of often neglected when it comes to money, earning more. So I teach people how to start a business. That's a huge driver. We have an earnable program. And we have a lot of people who start off making 200 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month it turns into quite a meaningful number if they're making $5,000 a month on the side or like one of our recent students, he's making $200,000 a month. He's full-time, not on the side. <laughs> so, and if you work at a job, you have opportunities as well. Negotiating your salary or switching jobs, we teach that as well. Yeah, that's great, Ramit. Okay, so I think you are one of the best marketers out there. I love your newsletter, your email newsletter. And to be honest, I've subscribed for years, in part because I'm going to use your products, but in part because you really make me a better writer. And one of the things I think you do really well is you <laughs> approach your ideas. You're kind of extreme. You're very funny. You attack bad thinking. So tell us a little bit about your approach to marketing, specifically through writing. And, you know, that's social media, email, etc. I've told hundreds, perhaps thousands of people to subscribe to your email list just for the pure <laughs> entertainment value. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And that's the greatest compliment we can have is someone who has purchased our programs and, and knows the quality and then continues to go out and refer other people to our newsletter and programs. Thank you. Um, I believe that with money and what we are doing, we are at least... 50% entertainment. You have to be. Nobody is. Nobody wants to buy an encyclopedia learning about corporate versus municipal bonds. It's, even I don't want to. It's so boring. And I actually think money is entertaining. I think business is entertaining. And I think that uh, we can do that with examples. And those examples can be, can span the gamut. They can be people who made boneheaded financial decisions. And they can be my recent student who's making $200,000 a month using what we teach in our earnable program. 
I can show people the fallacy of certain ideas out there in the personal finance or business world. You know, hey, the Wall Street Journal wrote this article. It actually makes no sense. Let me explain why. And let me do that in a in a gentle, but also, you know, I'm going to call it out. Let me also further explain how money is political. And I talk about all of these things so people know where I stand. They know it. And it's not for everybody. That's okay. I never want to intentionally be hyperbolic or antagonize. But I do want to tell people, this is my point of view. This is what I believe. I'll back it up. I hope to bring you on board. So I do marketing as well, and I reference some of your materials. One of the things I think you do so well is your take on problems. So for example, a typical weight loss campaign might say something like lose 30 pounds in 30 days or you know 10 pounds in 30 days or whatever it happens to be. But you really use different language. Can you talk about the language you use? Because, you know, it's important to save 10% of your income, invest 20%, et cetera, but it never comes across as just predictable and formulaic. And I know so many churches and so many business leaders that when they market, it's the same old predictable, pedantic formula over and over again. What can leaders do different in their language? Well, question number one I would ask him is, what magazines do you read? And if they say, uh, you know, I read some corporate bulletin, I go, okay, I don't, I don't care about that. What else? Ultimately, what I want them to talk about is they read Us Weekly or People Magazine or magazines that everyday ordinary people read. And this is an exercise I do with my own coworkers in my company. So I'll often ask them, They'll give me some stilted language on the first draft. And I go, okay, what do you read? These are new employees. Oh, I read uh, self-development daily and all this stuff. I go, I don't care about that. I'm in the self-development world. Even I don't care about that. And I want, I go, show me your bookshelf. They show me their bookshelf. It's all these like real pedantic books. I go, what do you watch for fun? And they get really embarrassed as if they should be ashamed. But this is the nut. This is the truth that I want to get to. They go, I watch Vanderpump Rules on Saturdays. I go, yes. I go, what do you learn on Vanderpump Rules? This real trashy show on reality TV. They go, oh my God, I can't believe what, what Lisa did. I go, yes. I want people to meet everyday people where they are. I actually consider that the highest honor to be able to reach anyone. Doesn't matter what socioeconomic status they are. I want to be able to speak their language. And that's hard, especially if you are a CEO or if you're in some executive position you have to fight to remain connected to understand what all different diverse people are looking for. That's what I insist for my team. So if you're listening, I would say, what are the headlines on Us Weekly or People Magazine or every day, travel and leisure? What do people want? They want an escape. They want to feel good. They want to know that they can make one small step. And if you start thinking of language like that and you start testing it with extensive research, as we do, we talk to lots of people, you're going to be much more grounded and connected to what people really want. So Ramit, we got a lot of church leaders listening. And if you could come in as a consultant to churches, and I don't know what your experience with the church is, but even as a person who drives by or, you know, being part of our culture, what would you say some of the biggest mistakes churches might be making or missed opportunities we might have when it comes to getting a message out to the world? Like where, what do you see in that? Number one, no point of view. What is the point of view? I consider having a point of view the rarest commodity on earth, having a point of view. I don't have to agree with your point of view, but I want to know what you stand for. 
Who are you? Why are you different? Why do you deserve to exist? It's not enough to be, in my case, talking about money. I don't deserve to thrive just because I tell people how to save 10%. That sucks. That's boring. I need to have a reason to exist. And I speak to people about money psychology. Very few others do. I have a perspective on you need to run the numbers. I have a point of view. And hopefully that's one of the reasons why you have stuck around for so long, which I appreciate. I would say if you run an organization, whether it be a church, uh, whether it be a small business, why do you deserve to exist? What is your point of view? And if you are leading that organization, that's really hard because your natural answer is going to be, we provide comprehensive services to XYZ and et cetera, all this jargon. I think a better way to do it would be, again, connect to normal people. Everyday people, what are they looking for in a church? It's not just a place to belong. Of course, that's a core part of it. But what else? And what are you choosing that is meaningful to your congregation or in our case, our customers? That's really important. Anything else you want to share with me while I've got you? Uh, I'm actually just curious to ask you a couple of questions. You've been with me so long. Can I turn it on you and ask you a couple of questions? Let's go. Okay. So you 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 followed along for, for years. You joined some of the programs. It seems like you're pretty savvy about other money advice out there. What do you think the point of view, what do you think my point of view and our point of view at I Will Teach You To Be Rich is? I would say your point of view is you default to yes. Yes, it is possible. Yes, you should dream a little bit. And I love the angle on the $30,000 decisions, not the $30 or $3 decisions. You know, I'm an Enneagram 8 with a 7 wing. But whenever there's restrictions, it always feels like a blanket to me. So you're telling me, you know, other people, you know, would be telling me, you can't have fun. Uh, You're telling me I got to bury myself under a spreadsheet. Your point of view to me is very compelling because you're like, I can't believe that these guys are talking about $3 lattes. Nobody ever got rich by stopping $3 lattes. Uh, But instead you say things like, so what about if you stop worrying about the lattes and started earning another $1,000 a month? And I think another thing you're really good at is you've, once you've got the $30,000 view, then you get into some very particular word-for-word scripts that you hand to people. In other words, here's the script when you call your credit card company and get them to reduce a fee or the annual charge, whatever they put on your credit card. So I would say your point of view is like um, you're a contrarian. And it's not about save, 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 don't, don't, don't. You're like, yes, it's possible. You can get out of this. And here's a whole bunch of students who have done the same thing. I love that. Thank you. Is that close? I mean, amazing. You, 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 um, you've kind of seen underneath what my philosophy is. And that's a big honor to me that you have explored my material so much and clearly applied it to your own life. That's pretty much the highest praise that I could ask for as a writer and a creator. So thank you. Well, I've learned a lot, Ramit. Thank Are there you. any other questions? Yes. What do you disagree with me on? That is a great question. So... I think I'm on the fence about home ownership. Mm-hmm. Okay, I like bottom line, I think you're right. Uh, let me give you an example on real estate. I have two kids who are in their 20s. Uh, one owns a house, the other doesn't. And of course, the market went bananas. I am not worried about my 26-year-old who rents because he's so savvy. And by the way, he read and digested, I will teach you to be rich, and he's following it to a T. Love it. 
I'm not worried about him. He is so disciplined. He has the discipline to save money. And that, that you know, that 10 or 20% that he's got that discipline. Most people don't. So the question I have is for the average person, a mortgage is helpful because it's a really bad forced savings. And I know for us, when I was in my 30s and we bought our first home, that's what it was. I think you could argue we would have been smarter to rent and then put 10 to 20% away, but I wasn't as disciplined back then. So that's one part where I'm like, you know, I'll put an asterisk beside that because you're right, but I, I think, you know, most people don't have the discipline to save. So maybe a more nuanced conversation. That's a fair critique. That's very fair. You know, it's it's one thing to be, I like how you said, you know, it might be technically right, but technical advice still exists in the real world. And some people are not going to invest the difference. That's a very fair critique. Yeah, because they're not disciplined. I'm not worried about my 26-year-old. He's disciplined. Uh, and he probably is going to buy a house one day. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's the only piece that really strikes me where I'd put an asterisk beside it. You're just, you know, your approach is so good at so many things. You are able to help high net worth people, which I think is fairly rare in the space that you do it. But then you also look at the student making 200 extra a month and you show them, hey, here's how you can make 500 extra a month. You haven't forgotten the student. And I think that's very important for everybody to remember. Thank you. Thank you. I think that um, the more uh, the more that my business has grown and the more that we've had access to students like you who have done incredibly well and our other students who have done incredibly well, we also remember what it's like to start off. And we all have different parts of life where we start off and we're just incredibly insecure. I have a bonsai tree. I'm not good at taking care of this bonsai tree. I mean, it's halfway to being dead. And I, you know, my wife bought me this little kid's book. It's like 10 pages to take care of your bonsai. I'm too nervous to even open the book, okay? Because I know I'm doing everything wrong. And going through that process reminds me what it's like to be a beginner. And I think it's too easy to get comfortable when you're good at something and you think everybody is at that same level. But when I think about how horrible I am with my bonsai and how nervous I am, and I'm so scared I won't even open up this little book to see what I'm doing wrong, then I know how people feel about money. And so, you know, for, for all the leaders listening, that compassion, I think, goes a long way. You may be very good at what you do, and hopefully some of your students and followers will come along to that level. But actually, most people don't want to get that good. They want to go from A to B or maybe A to C and call it a day. I want my bonsai to grow a little bit and I want to make sure it's not dying. And that's it. That, that's success for me. Maybe later in life, I want to grow like a, you know, six foot bonsai that's 700 years old. That would be great. But at this point, I just want the bare basics and that would be success for me. Ramit, I want to thank you so much. It has been a real joy to spend some time with you. And thank you for helping out so many leaders today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Go over to where they can find you too, your main website, the podcast, the book, the whole deal. So for those of you who are listening, the book is called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Same with the podcast. And you have an abbreviation for your website now. Is it IWT? Yeah, you can find me at IWT.com slash carry. And uh, on Twitter, Instagram at Ramit. And of course, the podcast, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Uh, and the book is called I Will Teach You To Be Rich as well. So thank you, Ramit. That was so much fun. That was fun. That was a blast. 
Well, that was really perceptive and an awful lot of fun. I would encourage you to check out what Ramit has to offer and make sure you check that out, iwt.com slash carry. Make sure you check that link out as well. And next episode, we have Rich Velotis with us. I'm going to show you a little bit more about that in a second. I want to thank our partners, Ministry Grid. Get your free resource kit to help church leaders do fundraising better by going to Ministry Grid. Get $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price by going to ministrygrid.com slash carry, where you can get all the training you want for your members and volunteers. That's ministrygrid.com slash carry. And by Generis, schedule your free call with one of their generosity experts by going to generis.com slash carry. So next episode, author and new life church pastor in New York City, Rich Velotis returns to the podcast. It gets fascinating. We talk about three waves of people leaving the church, why pastors keep failing, something I'm going to come back to a lot this year, and what Gen Z and boomers want from a church and what they don't, and so much more. Here's an excerpt. In our context, it came in three waves, in three waves. The first wave happened after the 2016 election, which just brought about lots of polarization and division. And I don't think I um, uh, contributed well in that season because I just had my own particular ideas about who our church would be voting for and why. And I think I alienated some people on social media by some mm. things I said, which was very a good lesson for me. But that was the first wave where some started trickling out. The second wave was uh, during the pandemic at the beginning of and mid middle point of 2020, where we have this pandemic, we have uh, a racial protest going on. And some folks were just wondering, how are we, you know, are we aligning ourselves ideologically and theologically with organizations like Black Lives Matter? And then folks started leaving then. Also coming up on the podcast, we have got, well, quite a bit. I mean, we just had Malcolm Gladwell. That's Pretty cool. If you missed that one, scroll back. But we've also got Trip Crosby, Jeff Henderson, uh, Tony Chapman, who's a marketing guru, Sint Marshall, Patrick Lencioni, Tim Tebow, and Stephen M. R. Covey, so many others. Make sure you subscribe, and that way you get that all automatically. I want to thank you for listening to this episode, for sharing it, and I'm also interested in giving you something for free. So I hear from a lot of bloggers, podcasters, authors, and communicators, and they're always saying, how do I grow my platform? How do I get more people to listen? So through my Art of Leadership Academy, I'm putting on a free mastermind to help you with exactly that, getting the right people in front of you, growing your audience, and getting them to get transformed by your content. If you want to grow your audience, this one's free. Go to influencekickstarter.com to sign up. It's absolutely free influencekickstarter.com in a matter of hours you can start to change the trajectory of your platform so just go to influencekickstarter.com thank you so much for listening everybody i hope you totally enjoyed today's episode as much as i did and we'll catch you next time on the podcast and i hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership <music>